Okay, uh, we are still in Romans chapter 5. And uh, last Sunday, we looked at the end of chapter, or excuse me, the end of verse 4. Excuse me, the end of verse 14. <laughs> and the uh, and we looked at verse 15. That's all we got done last week was talking about verse 15. Uh, partly because we spent a lot of time introducing uh, this next passage that we're looking at, or this next section of the passage, which is verses 15 through 21. Uh, and uh, so it just took a lot of time just kind of getting our bearings and thinking about where we are in the passage. So we spent quite a bit of time on that and then quite a bit of time on the verse itself. So... Uh, just kind of look at uh, look at those that verse there and uh, see what do you remember that we talked about last week, and uh, and then uh, and then we'll pick it up and read it again and 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 read down through verse 21 because I hope uh, today to cover uh, the rest of the chapter and I'll explain that in just a minute. But first, what do you remember that we talked about last week? Okay. 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 So the whole idea of this passage is the the certainty of our hope because of the greatness and the sufficiency of the work of Christ. And so that's kind of a main theme that goes through this whole section that Paul's point here. What else? Okay, okay. Uh, right, well, Paul uh, is here setting out some of the differences between Adam and Christ. And I'm glad you brought that up because we're going to talk about that at some length today that he kind of breaks it down into three categories. In verse 15, he talks about how the work of Christ as opposed to the, the, the transgression of Adam uh, are uh, differ in their extent and then they differ uh, in their kind of their nature or their content or the result, we might say, in verse 16. And then they uh, and then they differ in their destiny or uh, I thought of a better word uh, this week as I was thinking about it. Uh, they differ in their dominion uh, that we pick up in verse 17. And we'll talk more about that and explain more about that today as we go on. But so there's those kind of three areas that he uses to compare or contrast the death of Christ with the sin of Adam. What else? Okay. 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 Or let's rephrase that uh, to support that particular point that some Calvinists hold to. Not all Calvinists hold to particular atonement. But, right. Okay. Great. So this. Uh, the question comes up in this verse where he talks about, uh, he uses the phrase of the term there in verse 15, 
the many. And then he uses it again later in the verse. And we were talking about that. What does the many refer to? And we were talking about the fact that very clearly in the first case, it refers to all men because all men are sinners and all men are under the curse of death, etc. So very clearly uh, in verse 15, the many died as a reference to all, everybody. Uh, And so then the question is, uh, when it's used again in the next uh, in the next part of the sentence, does it mean the same thing? And I asserted that it that it's uh, hermeneutically. Uh, it seems uh, the only thing we could conclude is that it does mean the same thing. What else? Now you're getting cold? <laughs> Peggy, Peggy deserted us. We'll turn that down here since she comes back in. Anything else? Why is it important to Paul's argument to understand that the many, the second, the many in verse 15 is a reference to all men? Why is we talked about why it's important hermeneutically? Why is it important exegetically? Why is it important to Paul's argument to understand it in that light? Because the grace is available if it's sin, it's, it's to everyone. Okay. It's available to everyone. Okay. Whereas the sin is one man, Adam, and we are guilty because of our own individual sin. So it was more extensive. It was more abundant. Okay, okay. And that's the point that Paul is trying to make. Paul is trying to contrast the death of Christ to the transgression of Adam. And, and he's trying to show how the, the power and the effect, the extent, the dominion, every aspect of the death of Christ exceeds or is above and beyond the death of or the transgression of Adam, and so if we if 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 we don't understand that what he says there is that the death of Christ uh, is uh, uh, abounds as he says to the many, the grace abounds to the many. If we understand that to be in fact only those who are saved, then it's actually really not the many; it's the few, and it eviscerates Paul's argument, which is this great superiority of the work of Christ over the transgression of Adam. Okay? Anything else you want to mention before we go on? We're going to talk some more about verse 15, but uh, anything else you want to bring up? Okay. 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 We talked about the fact that God is eternal in the sense that he is outside of time. OK, he doesn't he doesn't you know, he doesn't live through time like we do. He comes into time just like he comes into space uh, to redeem us. But he's actually his nature, his existence is beyond or outside of which we can use that term. We don't understand uh, that concept very well because we're not God and, and we are so constrained by time. And and so the thing that that's so profound to me, so striking to me is to understand that when Christ hung on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he is suffering this excruciating uh, anguish of being separated from the father. We have this wound in the Godhead, if you will, this separation between the father and the son caused by the son taking on our sin. 
that that was not just something that just kind of, I mean, from our perspective, it was just a moment in time. It was those six hours that he hung on the cross. But from a divine perspective, from God's perspective, it's an infinite and eternal wound. So he bears that wound infinitely. And that is why we understand that it is adequate to cover all the sins of all of mankind through all of eternity and is, in fact, even more than adequate to do that. As he says here, it's abundant or super abundant. It's, it's beyond sufficient to cover the sins of all men. Okay? Yeah. I don't know if any of the commentators mentioned this. There's another way to read verse 15. Mm-hmm. Instead of the many, but either the many, right. actually being all, right. maybe it really means the many in both cases. Mm-hmm. Does anybody, does anybody read it in that context? What do you mean? What do you mean it means the many in both cases? Well, he says, for by the transgression of the one, the many died. Mm-hmm. In one sense, as Christians, we're not going to die spiritually. Right. So the many then would be the ones who are not Christian. Okay. 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 I don't know if that's so, uh, Yeah, some of them, some of them do mention that that the many, uh, one or two did mention that that the many refers to uh, to those who are of Adam, who are under Adam's headship, and those who are under Christ's headship. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Some do mention that. The majority of commentators I read read it as all. That is just simply all, because in fact all of us do die physically, which is the yeah, consequence I, I of sin. Yeah, odd that the, they want to take the word where the many in both. You know, they yeah. make a big deal about the second one being all, but yeah. the first one doesn't seem like that should be all. And so, why do we want to make them both all? Yeah. They both say many. So I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't well, know one reason we want to make them all say all is because he uses the word all later in the, in the passage. So he he in uh, verse. Uh, 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 verse 18. Uh, so then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, uh, and yeah, and I would argue that yeah. different. Yeah. The condemnation is different because the death he's talking about is a spiritual death. That's real. That's beyond what yeah. you're covering now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I would just simply argue. I would simply argue in response to that that the death that he's talking about is not simply spiritual death. Because very clearly he said in, in verse 12 that death spread to all men. So he's made it very clear that death is spread to all, and we know that is in fact true. We all deal with So the death that he's talking about is not just spiritual death, but it's physical death too. So, Okay, but those are good points to bring up. Okay, let's go on then. Um, uh, one of the things that's... Well, let's just read the passage, okay? And uh, just for the sake of context, let's go back and start in verse 12. Because what I want to do today, in the time that we have today, is, is I want to kind of try to back away from the passage a little bit and kind of look at the whole, whole passage as a package. Because I think that's crucial if we're going to really understand what Paul's trying to say here. So, let's start in verse 12. And read down uh, through uh, verse 21. Beginning in verse 12, Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. 
Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Jesus Christ, or the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. The law came in that transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, there's just a ton of stuff in these verses. <laughs> and you could, you could literally probably spend months just studying this passage and all the implications and, and, and all the things that, that, uh, that are tied into this passage because there's a ton of stuff here. But as I said... Uh, what I want to kind of do today a little bit is kind of before we look at some of the particulars, I want to kind of back off and kind of look at the picture. Because what strikes me about this passage is it's so easy in this passage to, you know, to use the cliche to, to uh, not see the forest for the trees, right? In other words, it's so easy to to be so focused on all the particulars and if I can use the word minutia of the passage, which are all important and profound and wonderful, if we get so focused on that, we can miss Paul's whole point. Okay? And so, uh, so let's just kind of back away a little bit and think about some things, some, some things we've already talked about. Remember, we've talked about the concept of the protesis and the apotesis, right? Remember those terms we use? Okay, sorry to throw new terms to you all the time, but sometimes they're just helpful, okay? So we have the apotesis and the apotesis, okay? And uh, do you remember what those are? I mean, not in the passage, but I mean, generally speaking, what do those words mean? They're like if-then. Yes, it's like an if-then, okay? So in a sentence, uh, in a conditional sentence, where we say, if you give me $5, I'll run to Walmart for you, okay? The statement... Uh, if you give me five dollars is is what we call a subjunctive clause. And the, and the idea is it's conditional. If you do this, then and then you get the main clause of the sentence. So the protesis is the subjunctive clause and the protesis in a sentence is the 
is the, is the main clause of a sentence, okay? So we've already talked about this. The only reason I'm going over it again is because sometimes you have to hear things about four or five times before you remember them, okay? So we talked about in verse 12, we get a protestus. What is the protestus of verse 12? What is the if clause or the conditional clause, we could say, in verse 12? Nope. Good call. <laughs> Therefore, just as through one man. So he sets a kind of a conditional or a, uh, an if thing or, a, or if this is so type of statement. Okay. And the if, if this is so type of statement or the just as type of statement is the Protestant. So he starts out and he says, just as through one man sin entered into the world. Okay. Now, what you're expecting him to say is, just as sin entered into the world through one man, and you're expecting him to, to do what? Okay, conclude the statement. But he doesn't, does he? We talked about that when we looked at verse 12. He doesn't conclude the statement. He gets, it appears, sidetracked. Okay. Now, he's not really sidetracked because what it turns out is that in order to finish his statement, he's got to lay down just a lot of other information. Okay? So, he says in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and then he goes, and then death through sin, and, 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 then, he, and then he had to talk about how there was sin in the world, you know, even between Adam and Moses before there was the law. And he has to explain all this stuff. And there's a reason why he has to explain all this stuff. Because he has one main point he wants to make. And it has to do with this idea of just as through one man sin entered into the world, so also something else. Okay? But he hasn't gotten to the something else yet. And so we... It was what was it two weeks ago or three weeks ago? We got we did the protasis and we still haven't gotten to the apotasis. So you probably forgot about the protasis, right? You forgot about the fact that Paul started out to say, just as sin entered into the world through one man, so also, and we haven't got there yet. Okay, but you got to keep that in mind. That's where he's going. Okay, now did you leave out a syllable there, or is that? Protasis. That's how it's said. P-R-O-T-A-S. Apotasis. Yes, I did. Thank you. Yeah, I was going to get that. Yeah, <laughs> I'll bet you were, weren't you? <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Yeah, apotasis. Protasis and apotasis. Okay. And I always want to say protasis and apotasis or something. But anyway, it's protasis and apotasis. Okay. All right. So, uh, what we have to keep in mind then is... Back in the background, while we're getting all this other information that we need to understand the apotosis and the significance of these two things together, we need all this intervening information. And that's what he's giving us. Okay. So that's what he was doing in verses 13 and 14 when he was explaining to us this idea of how sin came through Adam. And, and Adam introduced into us, the, into the world, and into the whole human race, he introduced this whole death-sin thing. Okay? 
And that's foundational. So what we're really what he's really doing here in verses 12, 13, and 14 is he's just expanding on this process. He's expanding on this just as through just as sin entered in through one man, or as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. And so this whole thing is an explanation. Verses 12, 13, and 14 are all an just an explanation or, or, or extension of this whole thing. Just as this happened, sin came in and, and sin was here and it was even here before, uh, before the law between, uh, between Adam and the law, sin was here and everybody was dying. And, you know. and so that's what he's explaining. He's explaining this. He hadn't gotten here yet. And we get to the end of verse 14 and he's just about ready to do this. So he says, Adam... Who is a what? Type of Christ. Okay. So he's just about ready to give us the apotheosis. The apotheosis is, the, the apotheosis was just as through one man sin had entered into the world. And then he gets to the end of verse 14 and he says, now Adam is a type of Christ. In other words, he's leading into giving us the apotheosis. He's leading into giving us the other half of the sentence. Just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam is a type of Christ. And so now he's going to give us the other part and show us how Adam and Christ are compared. Okay? How Adam is a type of Christ. How Adam is an image or a reflection or a picture of Christ. And he's getting ready to do that. And we talked about this last week, that he introduces this idea at the end of verse 14 that Adam is a type of Christ. Remember what we said about types. What is a type? A type is like an image or a picture or a shadow of something greater that's going to come. Okay, And so Adam is in some way a picture, an image, or a shadow of something greater to come. And that greater thing we now know at the end of verse 14 is Christ. So he's about ready to show us how Adam and Christ are alike. And then what happens? He tells how they're different, okay? It's like, as I said last week, and some commentators say this too, and I think it's, it's it, you know, it, 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 I don't know if it's technically true, but it's almost like, it's almost like Paul recoils at the idea of comparing Christ and Adam. It's almost like he goes, oh, I, you know, how can I say such a thing? Because they're so different. And so he spends the next three verses talking about how they're different. So he gets, on verse 4, end of 14, he gets right to the edge of telling us what the apotheosis is. And then he backs off. And he doesn't get back to it till verse 18. Okay. Now, it is easy to kind of get confused on this because as you get into verses 15 and 16 and 17, he has several other statements that contain protestants and apotheosis. Okay? But they're kind of sub-sentences. They're sub-arguments over his great argument. So let me show you what I mean. In verse 15, But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, a protestant, Many died, much more did the, the, the apotheosis. So, so if this, then this. So he's, so he's giving us a protestant apotheosis argument 
in or statement in verse 15. He does the same thing in 16. He does the same thing in verse 17. But it's, he still hasn't gotten to the ultimate apotheosis that responds to the first apotheosis he made, which was in verse 12. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I just said? So he's got this main argument. If then, or as this, so this. That's his main argument. And then to make to fill in the details so we'll understand his main argument, he gives us several other little arguments that are if then, if then, if then. Okay, So that's what he's doing in 15 and uh, 16 and 17. In a computer terminology, you're providing a program, that would be a nested if-then-else statement. Okay, great. I'm glad we all know that now. <laughs> that's funny. I was getting ready to mention that. But here's the thing about that. The reason that's important is because if the nested if-thens are not true, then the main is not true. Oh, okay. Great. Case, yeah. They are true, and it okay. proves the other. Yeah, good. Great. great. Okay. So, first then, he's come right up to the edge of saying how Christ is like Adam, and then he backs off and says, well, first let me tell you how they're really different. And they're different in their extent, and that's what we looked at in verse 15. And then in verse 16, he says, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. So first they're different in their extent, verse 15, and then they're, and then they're different in their, in their effect. The transgression of Adam, Adam's sin when he took of the fruit of the tree and ate it against God's command. Adam's one transgression that introduced sin into all humanity. Okay. What that did is that ushered in judgment and it ushered in condemnation. And when Adam did that, it damned all of us. All the way down from that very first sin, all the way down to the 21st century A.D. and every one of us it damned us, it condemned us to the judgment of God, to the consequences of our sin, which is death. Okay? So we're all under this curse of death because that's what Adam did. But what Christ did is instead of bringing condemnation, he says in verse 16, what does he bring? Justification. So, and, and remember what condemnation is what you get when you stand before a judge and the judge says you're guilty, right? And he condemns you. He says you are guilty. Okay. And remember, we've already talked a lot about justification in the early chapters of Romans. Justification is what? It's the decree of God that we are righteous. So, it's, so we have just absolute contrast between what Adam did and what Christ did. Because what we have with Adam is Adam ensured that every one of us would be condemned by that one sin. What Christ did when Christ died on the cross is He provided justification. He made it possible that when we stand before the bar of God's justice, He will say about you, you're righteous. That's just... Just it's absolute polar opposites. You can see why Paul recoils at the idea of comparing Christ and Adam initially. He recoils at the idea because 
It's just so different. What Adam did and the consequences of what Adam did and what Christ did and the consequences of what Christ did. Okay? So verse 16 is, uh, verse 15 is the difference of the extent of, wh- of what they did. Verse 16 is the difference in the effect of what they did. And then verse 17 is, is the difference in, uh, you might say, the destiny or the, uh, or the resulting dominion from what they did. Okay, So when Adam sinned in verse 17, what was the, what was the consequence? What was the destiny or the dominion that resulted from Adam's sin? Death. Death. Okay. Death reigned over us. Okay. So with Adam's sin, death was introduced into the human race, and we've been dealing with it ever since. You know, we all we just you know it's just it's almost as soon as we're aware of anything as a small child, one of the first things we're aware of is death. Right. It just it's ever present in our life. Paul in another passage talks about those who live their whole lives in fear of death. Okay. Now I, I was I was really spared a lot as I was growing up. I didn't have anybody close to me die, so I didn't have any parents die or siblings die or uh, my grandparents didn't die until I was a little bit older and that sort of thing. So I, I didn't have a lot of exposure to death, but but uh, and for those of you who did have a lot of traumatic experiences in your in your childhood of close people dying, uh, this may seem a little trivial, but for me it was a big thing because we had a lot of pets when I was growing up. You know, we had fishes and birds and, and fish and birds and dogs and you know all kinds of things, and we <laughs> we had a bird, we had a parakeet, and we had a cat, and uh, and we had a parakeet who liked to try to stick his head outside of the cage. <laughs> we came home one day and found our parakeet on the floor of the cage. <laughs> Headless. <laughs> uh, but the, <laughs> that was a little gross to me. I'm sorry I told you that story. but I didn't plan on telling that. Uh, but <laughs> but the one that really struck me was Laddie, our dog. We had a beautiful collie, beautiful collie dog when I was a kid, probably second grade or first, second grade or whatever. Lived in Omaha at the time. We had this beautiful collie. And uh, one time, I don't know, he got out or got away or something, didn't come back and didn't come back, didn't come back. And so I went out looking for him. Okay, And we lived by this, we lived just a few houses up a hill from from a, 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 a real busy four-lane street there in Omaha. Uh, called, at the time, it was called the Radio Highway. And, and uh, so I, uh, I went out looking for Laddie. And, uh, and I kind of went up the hill and around and came back down the hill on another street. And I got down to that highway, to that road. And I looked across those four lanes of traffic and I saw what looked like my dog lying over there on the curb on the other side, you know. And I walked across the street, you know, watched, you know, I watched traffic, got across the street, and there was my dog laying there, bleeding, mangled, and dead, you know. And I stand there over Laddie's body, and I called his name, you know, trying to get him to, you know, of course he didn't respond, you know. And so I 
And so I went home and told my family that Laddie had been killed. You know, well, for a little kid, second grade, you know, that's pretty traumatic stuff. You know, we we're just we just know death, don't we? We live with it every day, and and very soon in our lives it becomes much more significant than losing a pet. It becomes very you know traumatic, and we and we live with it the rest of our lives. That's what Adam gave us. We live under the power and the dominion of death. And it isn't long before we start, in our lives, start realizing, hey, that's my destiny too. And so we start doing everything we can to avoid it, don't we? You know, we start exercising, you know, we start trying to eat a little better, you know, we start taking out life insurance. You know, we start doing all kinds of things to try to compensate for the reality that we know that eventually we're going to die. That's what Adam gave us when he took of the fruit of the tree. But when Christ hung on the cross, he gave us something totally different. And for all of those who receive of the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, which is offered to us in the death of Christ, he says there in verse 17, those people will reign in life through the One, Jesus Christ. So, so at first, we're under this curse of Adam and we're under this curse of death and we're, under the, we're, we're, under, we're just totally under the dominion of death and it just controls our lives. But through Christ, not only are we no longer under the rule of death, but we actually ourselves are put in a position of reigning. So that we reign in life. And suddenly the whole idea of physical death, as Jim's pointing out, becomes highly diminished. It's nearly, not nearly as significant. Yeah, it's going to happen. But to us, it's now a threshold to that place where we're going to reign in life through Christ and through what Christ did for us on the cross. That's the contrast. And Paul wants us to understand that contrast. So we have these three things. We have the extent in verse 15. We have the effect in verse 16. And then we have the dominion or the destiny in verse 17. Right? Okay, then finally in verse 18 he gets to the hypothesis. He comes back to this idea of how Adam is a type of Christ. What is the similarity between Adam and Christ? Okay. And, and, and the next several, the next four verses, he's going to be explaining that to us. What is the similarity? What is this point of similarity? And it really is only one point of similarity. But what is this similarity? And the question I kept asking myself this week is, why does it matter? And this is why I stressed at the beginning of, uh, of our time here this morning the idea of stepping back and looking at the forest uh, and getting the picture of the forest and not getting lost in the trees. Because what strikes me is I probably, I, I read uh, about six different commentaries. Typically I'll study about six or so different commentaries in preparation for, uh, for one of these lessons. And I looked at six different, I studied, not just looked, but I completely read Six different commentaries on this passage this week. 
And I don't think one of them told me why this is important. And they're good commentators too. They're great commentaries. I love them. And they talk all about the fact that Adam's a type of Christ and how he's a type of Christ. And yesterday, as I was out praying, I said, God, I still don't know why. I don't know why it's important. I said, Lord, you just show me how it's important? It's really cool. You know, you people think I've known all this stuff all my life that I talk to you about. You know, but it's really cool how many times I'll go out on a Saturday afternoon to begin to try to put the lesson together after I've done all my preliminary study and I'll have some big, huge question. And I'll just go, God, I don't have an answer to this. And within an hour, I'll have an answer. Yeah, doesn't happen every time. <laughs> I can guarantee you that, which is why so oftentimes I stand up here and tell you, I don't know. Yeah. But so oftentimes it's happened to me that I just said, God, I don't have an answer to this. And I think this is important. Would you show me? And I, yesterday afternoon, I went out and I started talking about this idea of praying and thinking about this idea of Adam being a type of Christ. And I'm going, okay, I know that. And, you know, I've heard it all my life, but I still don't know why it's important. Why is it important? You knew Adam was a type of Christ, didn't you? Do you ever ask yourself, why does Paul go to all this trouble to talk about it in such minute detail, such minute detail, that all the commentators get wrapped up in the details and miss the point. Well, I don't know if they missed the point, but they sure didn't write it in their commentaries. So, at any rate, uh, so that's the question that confronts us today. How is Adam a type of Christ? And why does it matter? Okay. Well, the how part's pretty easy to answer. Because he tells us, right? And what's interesting is he goes back and those three points, the effect, uh, the extent, the effect, and the dominion that he talked about in verses 15, 16, and 17, he uses those same three points in verses 18 through 21. Let me show you. In verse 18, so as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Just kind of sounds like verse 15 all over again, doesn't it? Okay, It's the emphasis on all men. That there was condemnation to all men, and now there's justification to all men. And so, what we find out is that he's... And then, well, let me go on. In verse 19, For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So, once again, we have this idea of the, of the effect. Some were, all were made sinners. Now, some are going to be made righteous. Okay? Alright? So, in verse 18, we have a parallel to verse 15. And in verse 19, we have a parallel to verse uh, 16. Right? And then we get to verse 20. And we go, huh? Excuse me? Where did this come from? It looks like he's gone off on another one of his tangents. And we go, oh, Paul, come on now, please. Let's get to the point, right? Okay? Because he says in verse 20, the law came in so that transgression would increase and where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Well, the verse itself presents some challenge to us. But just even why does he throw it in there? Why does he throw that in there? I'm going. That looks like the book in verse 13. <laughs> okay. Okay. 
But, it, you know, he's following this really nice, nice little parallel, 18 to 15, 19 to 16. And then I get to 20 and I go, where did that come from? But finally, when I, we'll get back to that in a second. But when I get to 21, then I get the answer to verse, 19, to verse 17. I get the parallel of verse 17, which is death and life, right? So in verse 21, he says, So as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have this parallel between verses 15, 16, and 17, and verses 18, 19, and 2021. 20, okay. Now, as it turns out, verse 20 is not a diversion. It's not a rabbit trail. In fact, it's verse 20 that the Holy Spirit used yesterday to clue me in as to why this all matters. Okay, so it really is central to his argument. Okay, so... In verses 15, 16, and 17, he used these three things, extent, effect, and dominion, to show us the contrast. Now, in verses 18 through 21, he uses extent, effect, and dominion. But he's using it now, instead of show us the contrast, to show us the similarity. Now, look at those verses, particularly verses 18 and 19. What is it about Christ and Adam that's the same? It's certainly not the effect or the extent or the dominion. What is it that is the same? One. It's that number one. And it just comes up again and again in those verses, doesn't it? One act. One act. One act of transgression, one act of righteousness, one man's uh, disobedience, one man's obedience. And so what we find out is in this great contrast between what Adam did when he sinned and he brought condemnation to all men, but when Christ obeyed the Father and suffered on the cross for us, he brought in justification to all In this great contrast, there's one thing that's similar. And that similarity is what? It was through one. It was through one. It was through one. Now, that's pretty clear, right? Isn't that what he's saying? But not only through that one act, but also Okay, okay, that's true. That's true. Uh, but, of course, that's not the similarity that he's drawing on here. The one similarity he's drawn on is that it's by one. And so when Paul says in verse 14 <clears throat> that Adam is a type of Christ, he means this and only this. That through one man, Adam did all of this damage. And through one man, God's doing all of this good. That's the similarity. That's the type. Okay. That answers the first question. The first question is, how is Adam a type of Christ? The first question is answered. <clears throat> but I've known that Adam was a type of Christ my whole life. I didn't know why it mattered until yesterday afternoon.
You know, it's so easy for us to just accumulate theology, data, information. And that's important. Because you've got to have the information before you can go any further. But if you just stop with the data, and if you just stop with the information, and you don't ask God, God, why does this matter? You're missing out. And there's not one point of theology that doesn't matter. And you can, you know, you read the theologians and they're great to read and you love reading them and you, you get, you know, you just, oh, I didn't know that, I didn't know that, you know. You know. And, and, and that is all absolutely essential. I don't want to downplay it at all. But if I stop there, I've missed the point. And the Christian faith is full of all kinds of fascinating, wonderful truths and facts and theology. I love theology. But every single point of theology, whatever it is, has a point to it. Has a reason why it's important. Which is why, incidentally, theologians harp on the things they harp on. And argue so much about the things they argue about. Because they matter. But what does it matter that Adam is a type of Christ? The reason I brought up that, it, that Adam was made perfect is because Adam was made perfect and then he committed the sin, that one act, and that's what caused us to continue on. So we, so we are born of Adam yes. and we get his sin. Yes. Therefore, when Christ came, he was perfect. Yes. He was killed because of our sin. Yes. And because of that, the only way we have hope of justification because there's nothing we are a corrupt body. We are yes. corrupt. Yeah. We cannot save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And that way through that we have to be saved yes. Well you're touching on it there. You're touching on it. Okay, think about this. Paul has set before us in these verses, starting in verse twelve, this kind of grand landscape of humanity and the human condition. Okay? And in this grand panoply or landscape that he set before us, he set two kind of ultimately profound people events, right? So we've got this grand picture, I could call it redemptive history, if you will. This grand picture of redemptive history throughout all the history of mankind. And he sets before us two grand figures, and they are whom? Adam and Christ. Adam and Jesus. Okay, there's these two grand figures. Who's he writing to? Pardon? In Romans. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the Christians in Rome. Okay. What do we know about the church in Rome? Remember, go back to our first lesson in Romans. You know, the church in Rome. The church in Rome was originally Jewish. Okay. And then 
Right. And so the Gentiles rose in leadership, and so by the time Paul is writing to them, it is generally a Gentile church. Yes, but by this time... By this time, the Jews are coming back, so they're trying to influence the Gentiles. They're trying to bring some of their Judaism back into what is now a Gentile church. Yes, okay. Now think about this. Paul's writing to the Romans, to the church in Rome, to the believers in Rome, consisting of both Gentiles and Jews, and this whole issue of where does Judaism fit in now? Okay, that's in, that's in the mix of what the kind of things the church is struggling with and wrestling with. And Paul writes to them, and in chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, he sets out this grand panoply and he sets before them two grand figures Adam and Christ. And what are the Jewish readers of this passage thinking? Who's missing? Moses. Moses is missing. Where's Moses? Okay, Paul, this is all cool and good, but, you know, Moses is the, he's the founder of our religion. You know? If Adam was, I mean, if Abraham was the founder of the race, Moses was the founder of the religion. It was through Moses that the law came. And so the Jew is going, Paul, where's Moses in all of this? Where's the law in this grand scheme of things? And that's why Paul writes verse 20. But it's interesting the word that Paul uses. He says, the law came in. That word came in means it kind of came alongside came in beside. And in fact, one, one commentator translates, translates it, the law slipped in. Now, I, I don't really like that translation because it kind of gives the impression that it was an intruder and it wasn't an intruder. But it does kind of communicate the idea that the law is not central to this story. The law is incidental to this story. Moses is not central to this story. He is incidental to this story that Paul is telling in Romans 5. Why is the law incidental? Why is Moses incidental? It's, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. By one man came sin. And by one man came righteousness. And what Paul is saying here is Moses didn't bring righteousness. Moses doesn't play a role in this. There's only one man that plays a role in this as far as the redemptive aspect of it is concerned. It's just Jesus. It's nobody else. It's just Christ. Now, here's why it's important. Because Paul came in, or excuse me, Moses came along and he brought the law with him. And the law served a purpose. Now, he just touches on it here. When he gets to chapter 7, he's going to really explain this whole thing about the purpose of the law and how the law works. Okay. And he's going to talk about, in verse chapter 6, he's going to talk, talk about the believer's relationship to the law. And then in chapter 7, he's going to talk about the law and the, and, and the way the law works in an unbeliever. Okay. And he's going to make it clear... What he says here, he's going to clarify what he says here when he says 
uh, in verse 20, the law came in so that transgression would increase. And what he means by that are really two things, and we'll see this when we get to chapter 7. There are two things the law did that caused sin or transgression to increase. One is that the law makes people more aware of sin. Okay? Just when the, and Paul says it this way. He says, I was alive before the law. The law came and I died. He doesn't mean by that that he was okay before the law came. What he means is I, was, I thought I was okay. And we'll see this when we get to Romans 7. We'll explain all this. I thought I was okay until the law came. And when the law came, then I realized I was dead. Okay. Uh, so, one of the things the law does is it takes sinners and shows them how utterly sinful they are. Paul uses that word in Romans 7. How utterly sinful they are. But the law does something else. The law actually incites sin. It, it arouses, Paul says in Romans 7, it arouses our passions. So the law comes and says, you shall not lust. And I read that and my instinctive response in the flesh is, oh yeah? You say I can't lust? I can lust if I want. The law says you shall not steal. And I say, who says? And it arouses those passions in me. Now I go, oh, now wait a minute, God. Okay, we've got sin, and sin's already a big problem. And so what do you do? You give the law, and it makes things worse. And so some people will conclude, well, there must be something wrong with the law. We'll see in Romans 6 and Romans 7. No, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good. So God didn't give us something evil. He gave us something good. But the good that he gave us, he knew the good thing he gave us would reveal how sinful we were and actually make us worse. Now, why would God want to do that? He doesn't want to. It's our nature. Yeah, but why would he want to? <laughs> I mean, he didn't have to give us the law. He could have let us go. Okay. And why does he want us to know? Okay, but I can't change it anyway. So we need. So we'll see. We need a savior. Yeah. So we'll need. See, we need a savior. That's why he did it. But he not only gave the law, which actually, according to this verse and according to Romans seven, actually made our situation worse. God gave us the law; it made our situation worse. But read the rest of the passage. He says, the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, what? Grace abounded all the more. So when God gave the law, knowing that it would make our predicament worse, He did it, simultaneously providing for us a far more abundant way to solve the problem the grace that comes through Christ. So that as sin reigned in death, grace would reign through righteousness, through that one act of righteousness of Christ on the cross. Grace reigns through Christ's death on the cross, through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what's the point? Why does it matter that Adam is a type of Christ? This is why it matters. 
because when Moses came and gave the law, a lot of us thought, oh, that's how I get righteous. So you try to be righteous by law, and you try to be righteous by law, and you try to be righteous by law, and I try to be righteous by law, and you try and be righteous by the law. But the problem is, how did sin come? Sin came what? Through what? One man. One man. How does righteousness come? Through one man. It doesn't come through Moses' thoughts. It doesn't come through the law. It doesn't come through you or me and all of us together getting our act together and living righteously. That's not how grace and life and righteousness and justification come. It comes only through one man. This is why it's important that Adam is a type of Christ. Adam is a picture to us that just as I ended up in this predicament by the, by the sin of one man, Adam, I will be delivered from this predicament, not by my efforts or your efforts. In one place the Scripture says, no man can by any means redeem his brother and he should cease trying forever. I can't save you. You can't save you. Moses can't save you. Ronnie Rogers can't save you. I can't save you. There ain't anybody can save you. But one, one, one man, one man's act of righteousness, one man's act of obedience, one man's death, and only that one man. That's why it's important that Adam is a type of Christ because he shows us that just as through one man sin entered the world, so also through one man comes life and peace and grace and redemption and salvation. And that one man is Jesus Christ. Okay? Next week, we'll, or a couple weeks from now, we'll go on in Romans 6.